and welcome to Always Take Notes. If you're an aspiring author, you'll be excited to hear that this week's sponsors are Curtis Brown Creative, the renowned writing school affiliated to the major literary agency. Since launching in 2011, over 150 of their students have gone on to get major book deals, including acclaimed authors Jesse Burton, Claire Pooley and Kirsty Capes. CBC run a wide range of courses for writers at different stages of their creative journeys. Their new four-week online course, Plot and Story, The Deep Dive, is the perfect next step for any fiction writer struggling to weave the threads of their narrative together. Exclusive teaching videos, resources and writing tasks from best-selling author Laura Barnett will teach you the most useful theories of story structure and show you how to use them to shape your plot. Plus, all students will be given the opportunity to get individual feedback from one of CBC's expert fiction editors. Visit www.curtisbrowncreative.co.uk to find out more about all the courses on offer. Curtis Brown Creative have provided an exclusive discount for Always Take Notes listeners. You can use the code ATN20 for £20 off the full price of Plot and Story, The Deep Dive, or any other four or six week online writing course. And welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak with novelist and screenwriter David Nichols. We spoke with David about starting out as an actor, about his huge success with the novel One Day in 2009, and about his parallel career as a screenwriter. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, David, to Always Take Notes. It's brilliant to have you on the show. Could we start by talking about your decision to quit acting at the age of 29 and pursue writing? What informed that decision? Well, it was sort of taken out of my hands, really. I was, I was, I was um, working a lot at the National Theatre and traditionally, you know, like the civil service, you were meant to work your way up. You were meant to get more and more opportunities and more and more lines. And I, I found the longer I was there, the less I was being given to do. And I think it was their way of saying, look, this isn't really for you. I, I love being at the National. I, I never really did anything that you would notice on stage. I was very much a company member, but I loved the institution. Uh, at the same time, I was doing... Um, things which I found much more stimulating and which I seemed to be better at. I was doing a lot of script reading, um, starting to think about maybe script editing as a career, you know, developing other people's scripts, working alongside other writers. And I just, I think, started to get positive responses to my own work. So, uh, you know, people were reading scripts. I had, I had three or four pieces of work that I could show to people and it seemed like a good time to, to, to leave. I had a choice, actually. I remember... Very vividly, I was offered a job as a script reader for BBC Radio Drama, uh, just going through the slush pile and working with new writers. And at the same time, um, offered um, a world tour of Twelfth Night with the RSC, uh, understudying Orlando and playing, you know, playing servants again. And I had to choose between the two. And I'd always wanted to be part of the RSC. It, it was a lovely world tour. It would have gone on for two years. But at the end of those two years, I'd have been in exactly the same position, but in my early 30s. So I, I 
uh, turned it down and took the job at the BBC as a script reader and alongside that started to work as a writer. Is it right that there was also this experience playing Chekhov when you were understudying Constantin and the Seagull? It was also a, a motivation. Uh, yeah, yeah, I did it for a long time. In Whitnell and I, there's a there's a there's a line. Uh, it's like it's a classic disenchanted actor's line about understudying Constantine, and I did do that for nine months at the National Theatre. My actual role was to go on stage as one of the servants at the beginning who were building the stage. Uh, for the play within the play. Uh, so I had to run on in a pair of long johns with a broom and uh, stand around at the back while Judy Dench gave this amazing performance. People like Judy Dench and Bill Nye and, and, and um, Helen McCrory and Alan Cox, who I was understudying. It was an amazing cast. Um, but I never really spoke. And yet I knew the part. You know, I could have gone on at any point. I, 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 I could have... Uh, I, I loved the part. I was actually, it was one of the very few parts that I was quite well cast as. You know, I'd have been a good Constantine in The Seagull, but I never got to play it. Um, Alan was always very fit and healthy. And so I, instead, I just stood around at the back of the stage in a pair of long johns with a broom. Uh, I loved the play. I loved the company. I got to play it once. Uh, when you're an understudy at the National, you get to do an understudy run and you can invite a few people, but largely the, the theatre is empty. So I have had that experience of playing Constantine and the Seagull to a more or less empty theatre, not just any theatre, the Olivier Theatre. Um, but it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mixed blessing, really. It's a, it's a, it's a um, um, rather ambivalent feeling because you're giving your, your all and no one really is watching. So I, it was another sign, really, that maybe I should um, I should find something else to do. I'm sure the long johns and the broom were essential to the sort of ambiance <laughs> of the general <laughs> of the general play. Yeah, I don't think anyone else anyone else could have done that. I mean, I I, I sound yeah. You know, I've I've turned it into a kind of shtick over the years, and and I do feel sad that I didn't have more success. But at the same time, if I'd had any success, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have been a writer, you know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, I'd have kept going because I, even though I, I was, I knew that I wasn't particularly good at it. I, I watched all these amazing actors who had such charisma and grace and skill and versatility. And I was okay in a very small window of, of a, a certain type of acting. I could kind of do okay, but I was never going to excel. The most I could have hoped for was to be a, you know, a respected jobbing actor. And in, in a way that would have been wonderful, but, um, I think I always also felt a little bit out of place at theatre, in, in the theatre, because I'd never really had a great love of theatre as a, as a member of the audience. Uh, what I loved about theatre was being in a company and being engaged in the business of telling a story, characters and writing. That's what I loved. I wasn't a huge theatre goer. Even now, I, I, I don't go to the theatre very often. I always slightly kind of resent being there. I'm very intolerant of, of um, overlong overwritten plays. I, 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 I get quite bad tempered at the theatre. I just loved the business of writing and performance. That's what I liked about theatre. And had you had a particularly um, sort of a childhood steeped in performing arts and reading? I read that you went to the library sort of two, three, four times a week, but was, was, were plays a big part of that as well? No, absolutely not. I mean, I, 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 it's no exaggeration to say I didn't really see a play until I was... Um, 16, 17. I, 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 I was a TV kid, you know, I just used to turn on the television when I got in from school and, and watch it as much as I could. And uh, I loved movies in particular on television. I loved TV drama, 
you know, I loved the plays of Alan Bleasdale and Dennis Potter and uh, I just sucked up as much as I could of, 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 of soap opera, of sitcom, of stand-up, of variety. Um, it was all television. I, I didn't really have any contact with with theatre as a member of the audience. I, I just, I was the only boy in my school who was prepared to be in the plays. And so I tended to get much bigger parts than I deserved. And it gave me this kind of false impression of my abilities, really. I liked it at that stage as a kind of social thing, as a, as a fun thing. I was, I, it wasn't that I was any good, but I was better than, than all the other boys because there weren't any. And so I, I wasn't not, I was not steeped in theatre culture. I didn't have any expectation of being a writer. I didn't know anyone who was a writer. I didn't know anyone who worked in the performing arts or books or anything at all. No contact at all with, with the arts. Um, except through watching telly and going to the library, which I did do obsessively for many years. Yeah, I mean, my, my, my time in the library was at least as important to me as my time at school. Um, uh, just working my way through the shelves in a very random scattershot way, just picking up things that took my fancy and, 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 and reading, uh, yeah, just finding, finding my own way through those shelves. And I saw this comment in another interview you'd done saying that when you went to university, you were the first person in your family to go, um, and your parents were simultaneously proud but also concerned, and then certainly concerned afterwards when you spent eight years living in bedsits. Could you tell us about about that experience? Yeah. Well, I, I yes, I I I didn't really um, have any expectation of doing that either. Again, I didn't understand what it was. I, to, to me, education was all about turning up at the classroom and 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 and, and sitting exams. And I. I was a bit of a swat, you know. I I think when you're a kid, you sort of self mythologize a bit, and 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 the 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 image I built of myself was of someone who was you know bad at games, but but a big reader and and pretty good at sitting exams. And so, it was my it was my ambition to get good O levels. And 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 when I got to college, then this possibility of university appeared. And I I didn't know anyone who'd been to university. I didn't I didn't know what students did all day. I, I, I there was at that stage I was I was um quite into science. I thought maybe I I'd be a scientist or a zoologist or a doctor or something like that. And my my A levels were physics and biology and chemistry. But at the same time, you know I was an obsessive reader, reading the classics and and being in plays. So there was this other arty side as well. And when I did my A levels, there was a bit of a tussle between the two. I remember the day I gave up. Uh, A-level chemistry to do A-level English uh, alongside theatre studies and my dad was incredibly unhappy. He was um, he was a fitter, he was a mechanic. He, he worked in a, a cake factory on the production line, keeping the production line going and so he didn't really have any point of contact with me about my passions and enthusiasms and, and this thing that I loved, you know, books and um, you know, arty films and, and, and being in plays, it was something that um, was a bit of a barrier, I think, between between me and my parents. And uh, yeah, they were they were they were excited that I was going to university, and I was lucky to have in those days a full grant. Otherwise, I'd have never have gone to study English and theatre studies at Bristol, which is what I did. And they were very proud. But at the same time, I know that if I'd been doing engineering or medicine, uh, it would have been a different kind of pride. Um, and uh, I have no complaints at all. I mean, they were very supportive, but it was, it was, it, I've always had, it's always been something of a, 
a double-edged sword, I think, education can be, uh, because it, 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 whilst it, 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 it often takes you in a different direction that's perhaps away from your, your roots, your origins, your family. And certainly that was my experience. And what was your experience of, of studying um, English and theatre studies? How was the course actually structured? It was um, it was great. I was very happy. And I look back now with all kinds of, uh, with a mixture of nostalgia and regret because I really didn't know what I was doing. You know, I, I was there suddenly with a lot of kids from big cities who were a lot more sophisticated, a lot more savvy, a lot more politically smart than I was, a lot more politically engaged, a lot cooler. Uh, I, I, I was gauche. I was really um, out of my depth. And, um, and yet I kind of... I, I, I absolutely loved it, fell in love with the city, we had a lot of very um, intense friendships and a lot of staying up late, putting the world to rights, all of those those cliches. Um, but yeah, I was a fool as well. You know, I was a, didn't really know uh, the right thing to say or the right thing to do. So I was intimidated by, by these, what I thought, rather brilliant people. It was It was the mid to late 80s, so it was a very political time. Um, there was a, a lot of kind of anger, a lot of going on demonstrations. Um, I very much went along with that. But I, I, the things that I was good at, you know, what I liked doing was, you know, getting cast in a play in a nice part and showing off. And the things that I liked on telly were often quite mainstream things, you know, mainstream dramas, sitcoms, that kind of thing. And suddenly I was in the world of, 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 of the avant-garde, of, of Bauhaus and Brecht. And I didn't know anything about Pina Bausch. I didn't know anything about devising movement work. And no one ever said to me, um, why don't you write a play? If anything, writing a play would have, would have seemed a bit old-fashioned. It was much more about uh, improvisation and devising physical theatre. Um, We'd, and that, that wasn't really my strength. So the nearest I got to writing anything was, was, was performing sketches with my friend Matthew. Uh, you know, I was a big comedy fan at that stage. So I loved it, but at the same time, I, I wasn't very cool there. I was a bit of a buffoon. Uh, I, I'm very grateful for that time, and, and, and the education I got there was invaluable. But, uh, yeah, I was uh, my most Adrian Molish, I think, at the, in those years. And how did you end up going on to New York after you'd studied at Bristol? It was really a kind of wild, confused stab at, at just doing something. I, I didn't really know what to do. I, I'd used up all my state grants, so I couldn't go to, to drama school, even if I could have got in. Um, I wasn't sure that I was academically bright enough to, to pursue that. Uh, I thought perhaps I'd teach, but uh, I wanted to, to act. And I, I, I read this thing about getting a, a way of getting a scholarship to study acting at this um, New York drama school called the American Musical and Dramatic Academy. And so I, on a whim, I went along and auditioned and got in. And I'd never really been abroad. I mean, I'd never been on a plane. Uh, and I, I'd always loved American culture. And suddenly there was the possibility of going to New York and having, for the most part, having it paid for. Uh, and so I got in and I went along and, and I was both overawed by the experience of being in New York and also desperately lonely there. It was it was a it was an academy that was very much based around musical theatre and I couldn't sing. I couldn't dance. I, I could do the barely do the simplest choreography. I couldn't use an American accent. I was this kid who loved Shakespeare and Chekhov and Dickens and, and I was very much... Um, 
again, you know, in the wrong place. Uh, not in the wrong place, but didn't really know how to succeed there. But it was it was like an initiation. It was a self-inflicted uh, rite of passage to go somewhere where I knew no one, uh, to go abroad, to go a long way from home and stick it out for a while, which is what I did. But it didn't really move me on in terms of training or, or, or contacts. It was it was a kind of wild, strange, eccentric decision. The only thing that I got out of it, I suppose, in the long term was that I used to write long, desperate letters to friends telling stories about these mad musical theatre classes that I did. And I tried to make them as funny as possible. And, and, and that was the first time that I, I wrote at any length it, with the purpose of entertaining people. So in a strange kind of way, my way into writing was through letter writing because it was a, it was a mode of writing that had a practical uh, purpose. And the, some of the people I wrote to later on in their careers went on to work in TV and film and they were always saying to me, you know, you should do something with those letters you used to write. And that's what I did. Could we fast forward a few years again um, to your script editing work? Because um, in other interviews, you've said that was really your way into into writing. Um, what were some of the projects you worked on, um, and how? And you know, for, for listeners who might not know what script editing involves, could you sort of sketch out um, exactly how your time was divided? Sure. I mean, uh, there, there's a sort of um, in between production and the writer. There's another stage. There's a there's a group of people called script editors who are responsible, uh, in some ways, on a very practical level, with the business of making the script work to, work on screen. So. They give notes. They give notes about production. They give notes about scheduling. They they give um they they collaborate with the writer and the producer and the director to make sure the script is as good as it can be and also practical, practically possible to film. So they clarify inconsistencies in the story. They make sure that all the um the actors are given equal. The characters are given equal, appropriate screen time. They make sure that the story is clear. Um, it's it's um it's an editorial role, but you do get to collaborate quite closely with writers. So on a show like EastEnders or Casualty or Coronation Street, script editors are responsible not just for organising, but also for developing certain storylines and characters. So they'll write Bibles, they'll write the background for each of the characters, they'll suggest storylines, they'll collaborate with the writer to make sure that the characters are really singing. Um, I never really did that kind of script editing. I was much more of a development script editor. So I was reading a lot of novels. Uh, I was reading a lot of new writing. I was going to the uh, theatre a lot, just coming up with ideas for shows. Uh, I was working with two very good producers called Sally Head and Gwenda Bagshaw at LWT. And I had an idea for a TV show for ITV, nine o'clock Sunday nights, about national service. That was my idea. And my job was to find the best possible writer who could write an ensemble, returning, multi-part, multi-series show about... 1950s provincial Britain, a group of people coming together from disparate backgrounds and the adventures that, that came out of that situation. And I went in and pitched it and they said, that's a great idea. Let's get a writer on board. And I said, if you don't mind, I'd like to have a go myself. And I did. And that was my first one hour television drama. And so I, that's how I sort of sidestepped from storylining and writing Bibles for the characters to actually writing the dialogue and the scenes myself. Um, at the same time, I was doing a similar thing in comedy with a sitcom based on my time working as a waiter. And uh, 
working with another friend, Matthew Warchis, on an adaptation of a Sam Shepard play. So I was doing these three wildly divergent, varied projects, none of which were quite my voice, but all of which allowed me to offer up a script to producers in different forms. Um, and that was the beginning. That's how I made the leap from script editing, which I, which I loved, um, to actually script writing. And then you, you had this break with Cold Feet. How did that come to pass? And what, what was the role that Faye Ripley played in, in that piece? Well, I, uh, I had an idea. I went to see a producer called Christine Langan. I'd always loved romantic comedy and kind of wanted to write one. And I had this pitch for a one-off romantic comedy. Christine had just been producing Cold Feet, which was a huge success, a kind of 90s ensemble show about relationships. And she thought that this romantic comedy idea would work great for Faye. And so uh, I wrote a one-off for ITV called I Saw You, which was really sweet, you know, very classic, um, confused identity, uh, British rom-com of a particular kind, I suppose of a kind of Richard Courtesy kind, uh, which went out on ITV and did very well. And that got me my first long-term writing job, which was to work alongside Mike Bullen, on his show, Cold Feet, the third series of Cold Feet. So suddenly I was, you know, in script meetings and, and, and pitching ideas and writing scenes for established characters. And so Faye was very supportive of me joining the writing team of Cold Feet. And that was, those episodes did really well. Uh, they, were, they were good, strong episodes of someone else's show. So they were a brilliant calling card for me. Um, and... I was very lucky. I think writers often kind of cast. Uh, you, when you're a script editor and a producer, and you're trying to find writers to join a team. You're effectively casting them. You're looking at their voice and what they can do. And Cold Feet had a kind of mixture of comedy and drama that I could do, had certain romantic elements that I could do. I could write in the voices of those characters. And so it was a very good fit for me and a really big break. And I'm very grateful to that show um, for, for giving me my first leg up into television because it was you know it was a huge hit it was getting 10 11 million viewers and everyone was watching it at the same time and uh it was very thrilling in those days those days before streaming to know that that 11 million people were sitting down to watch something you'd written um uh, next day you'd get this phone call which was the viewing figures and you'd hope that they'd gone up and that people hadn't turned off at the ad breaks and it was a really exciting time um, so I learned a lot. It was kind of my apprenticeship. And what um, made you turn away from television to write Start of a Turn in 2003 and then The Understudy in 2005? Well, again, you know, I didn't really turn away. I was pushed out the door. <laughs> I got my own shows. I got to write a, a, a longer version of I Saw You for ITV and a, and a show called Rescue Me for the BBC. And I was really proud of both shows. And Everyone at that stage was looking for the new cold feet and who better to provide the new cold feet than someone who'd written cold feet. So uh, it was a it was a big break for me to get my, you know, my first two network shows. And they were on in the same week, one on BBC One on Sunday nights and one on ITV on Friday nights. And they're good shows, but they both slightly underperformed. You know, it was very hard in those days to get something about relationships on the screen at nine o'clock and have people watching. Cold Feet was really the only one that could do it. And so neither of them got recommissioned. And suddenly I, I, I went from having, you know, uh, how many hours? Uh, nine hours of television in, in the space of, of two months to having no work. 
So I took a little time off and sulked around a little bit and, and, and wanted to write about what I was, I suppose, what I was talking about earlier, about the kind of um, the mistakes you make when you go off to university and the, the class elements that lie behind education. And, um, uh, but to write something funny and romantic about going to university. It's very hard to write about being a student without just rambling on about drunken nights um, at the student union. So uh, watching University Challenge one night, I thought, well, look, this is a sort of, this is a funny um, hook to hang the story off because it's sort of a sports movie. You know, it's about qualifying and then making it to the semifinals and making it to the finals. And the idea that someone would try and win someone's heart through general knowledge seemed like a funny idea. So I managed to combine my own feelings about education and, and my experience at university with this firmer, not gimmick, but a framework, a structure that would make it something more than just a lot of anecdotes about getting drunk. And that was uh, seemed like a good idea for a television series, but I knew that no one would commission it as a television series. And so I wrote it as a novel. And and so, yes, like many things that I've done, it was born out of failure, really, born out of necessity to find something else to work on. Did you then, because clearly you were, you were back writing TV, you know, fairly soon after that. And as, as those, those two sides developed, did you decide consciously that you were going to uh, continue, do novels and, and TV and film in parallel? Or did it just evolve? And it's interesting because we had, we had William Boyd on the show who said that he'd made a, a pretty deliberate decision that he was going to develop these two different tracks of, of writing prose fiction, but also writing for the screen. But he regarded them as very separate activities. But how did it, how did it work for you with those two different pieces? Well, I I found that I I found writing for television very exciting, but also absolutely terrifying. And later for film as well. You know, if anything, film is more frightening because it's such a precarious make or break opening weekend kind of uh, high stakes gamble. Uh, and the process of, of making it, getting through all that development, getting into production is incredibly stressful in both TV and film. At the same time, I didn't want to stop doing it. What I did want to stop doing was writing so much because I, I'm not the kind of writer, I'm not like Russell T. Davis or one of those great talented writers who can write 10 or 12 or 15 hours or three series, four series of a show. You know, I don't have that much story in me. I, I, I'm much happier writing something self-contained or something, you know, uh, a two-hour movie or three-hour miniseries. I, I can't come up with that much material. So I knew I I wasn't very good at writing series. Um, at the same time, I fell in love with writing prose, where you you have uh, you do have arguments and you do have notes and you do have edits to do, but it's it's much less fraught, um, and you have much more control because there's there's you're not collaborating with anyone really except the your editor and a few other people at the publishing house. So I, I, I fell in love with writing prose and I didn't want to stop writing scripts. So I, I've kept, I have kept both up consciously and um, uh, that's been just about manageable. I mean, especially because recently what I've done more of is, is adaptation where you have such a strong framework before you set out that um, you are, it, it, it's almost more of a, it's making it saying that it's a technical job isn't quite right because that suggests that you're doing it in a rather cold clinical way which I don't I, I get just as emotional about an adaptation as I would about an original script but I, it is 
I would find it very hard to write a novel in the morning and an original screenplay in the afternoon, but I can um, keep both uh, projects in my mind if one is a novel and the other is an adaptation of a, of, a, of someone else's work that I love. And so that's ten, that tends to have been what I've done for the last 15 years. Um, I would hate to find out that I was never going to have another script produced, commissioned or produced. Um, at the same time, I, I, I'm not a very, um, uh, I, I find it really hard to write fiction unless it's something I feel very strongly about, unless it's a compulsion, and unless I feel pretty confident that it's a story that needs to be told. So I'm not as prolific as a, as a novelist as I'd like to be, because the actual business of writing a book, the practicalities of it, the process is, is generally speaking, a little less horrifyingly tense than, than making a TV show or a film. Could we talk a little bit about your process when it comes to adaptations, um, both in terms of adapting other people's work, Thomas Hardy, um, the Patrick Melrose novels, um, and what it's like, how that compares with adapting your own work? You know, how do you go about adaptation in both instances? Well, the first stage if I'm adapting someone else's work is, is, is a, I mean, I, I have to learn it. And I, I learn it by reading it and reading it and reading it and annotating the copy and uh, often listening to it. With Patrick Melrose, I listened to all five books on audio for for years. I mean, for the years that we spent developing it, it's, yeah, it's all I listened to as I walked around London till you know it backwards. And then you can, you, you, it goes through a strange, almost like a, it's a sieve in your mind. You know, the bits that sing out for you, the bits you look forward to, the bits that make you laugh, even though you've read them or listened to them 10 or 15 times, you, you, you start to build your own version of that story in your mind. And, and that's what you write down in the screenplay. You try and convey what you love and are passionate about in the book and select it and organise it to make it work on screen. The hardest thing with any adaptation of a book is the lack of a, an interior voice. Um, screenwriting is often about trickery. How do you tell the viewer that someone is what someone's name is, or that they're brother and sister, not lovers? You know, how do you how do you how do you put this stuff uh, onto the screen when you are not able to do the very 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 simple thing you can do in a book, which is just to tell the reader. Uh, uh, I was feeling rather sad that day. Fine, in the script, uh, in, a, in the novel, that's it, that's it. That's all you have to write. In the screenplay, what are you going to do? Are you going to have put it into dialogue? Are you going to put it into stage direction? If it's dialogue, who are they going to talk to? Because we don't often express our feelings out loud. So there's a, there's a huge amount of um, trickery involved. Uh, in terms of adapting my own book, accepting that you are going to lose... 90% of the text that you're going to lose, all of that inner voice that you're going to lose, all of the um, the commentary that runs alongside the dialogue, and that all you're really going to, going to be able to take are the events, the actions and the dialogue. That's really tough. And it's especially tough with your own work because... Um, Often there's a story behind the story. There's a there's a set of experiences there's a, 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 that that potentially mean quite a lot to you. I've never really, you know, put real life characters from my life onto the page, but certainly a lot of my feelings and experiences have been filtered through fiction and found their way there. And then suddenly, but then suddenly you have to develop an incredibly callous, ruthless attitude to this material and throw most of it away. And so it's quite painful. And the only thing that's more painful is is letting someone else do it. So um, you have to accept that 
process before you start. There's no point grumbling about it. You have to just accept that all those great jokes that you love, all those things that on the page people say, oh, I love the scene where, chances are you're going to have to cut a lot of it because it just won't make sense on screen. And that's tough. And I don't get that same kind of sense of loss. Um, God, I'm being very melodramatic about it. But I, I, it, it, it doesn't bother me quite so much if the book belongs to Thomas Hardy rather than me. Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the novelist and screenwriter, David Nichols. You're about to hear the next instalment of our new segment. In this segment, you'll hear previous guests of the show answer one of three questions. What's a piece of advice you wish you'd had at the start of your career? When is a time you failed? And what's the most important trait someone in your profession can have? Their answers weren't included in the main interviews that Simon and Rachel did with them, so hopefully they give you some fresh insight into the careers of some of the fascinating guests that we've had on. So, without further ado, here's the magazine writer and investigative journalist, Mei Jong, with a piece of advice she wished she'd had at the start of her career. The first thing that comes to mind is, go before you're ready. I think there's a tendency to want to get all your ducks and drakes in a row, but ultimately you can't inoculate yourself from all eventualities. You just need to go and do it. And if you're a reasonably thoughtful person, chances are very high that you are likely very ready. And I think you should just go for it. And also, as I'm saying, though, I'm realizing that life lessons or you know what are these called advice is quite useless in many ways because for for the giver they they come after the fact and you know when you you don't really have much need for it and also what i've learned in my life is that suggestions and recommendations are often quite specific i mean i think the reason why i say go before you're ready is because i feel like i committed the the crime of wanting to overprepare and you can't really live like that. That was Mei Jong. Now back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with David Nichols. A point that's come up with other screenwriters we've had on the show has been the evolution from a kind of traditional British model of a, a single writer with a script editor to this more American style of having a, a showrunner and a writer's room and stuff like that. And how, with, with your work and as your career has developed, how, how have you been between those two different practices? <clears throat> well, a, a couple of times um, I've been offered projects which I really liked and people have said, uh, but they've been, you know, eight or 10 or 12 parts. Uh, often American projects, and I've said I can't do this. It's you know two, three, four years of my life. I, I I want to write fiction, and they've said, well, you don't have to write it all. You can be a showrunner, and and there's something for a British writer that sounds quite glamorous about this. You know, you have this vision of studio lots in California and and walking to the room and standing in front of a whiteboard and 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 talking to lots of exciting young writers, but being the boss, and. I've realized very, very, very early on that I did not want to do that, <laughs> that temperamentally I wasn't really 
uh, prepared to do that, that I could never, uh, I would find it uh, hard to rewrite someone else's script in front of them. Uh, that the reasons that you would employ a writer to join your writer's room is because you admire their work, but but not so much that you're not prepared to throw most of it out. I, I, I would have found the etiquette of that very difficult. Uh, and of course, there are lots of writers who are, are very professional, very objective and calm about that kind of process. But I didn't think it was my uh, role. Uh, and um, and so I've never worked in a writer's room, not since Cold Feet. Um, I, I've never wanted to. I've always been much happier writing uh, scripts that are more contained, but are all my own work. And so far, I, I haven't yet been overwritten. I'm sure I will be one day. But I know that I would find that hard and I would expect any writer that I was working with to find it hard if I wrote over the top of their script as well. Um, at the same time, you know, shows benefit from it. The reason why these shows are often so dense with great lines and great jokes is because this kind of ruthless stuff has gone on. And, and definitely I've written things in the past that would have benefited from from other writers' input. It's just not something I, I'm I'm very good at or comfortable with. And I'm much, much happier to do um, shows which have a smaller volume, aren't necessarily going to come back for two or three or four series, but which are all my own work. If we could return to the sort of chronology of your career um, again, um, one day, obviously mega hit in 2009, at what point did you know it was going to be huge? Well, there's a bit where the proofs go out and and you wait for people to pick them up and read them and often not as many people read them as you'd hoped and, and they, they, they sort of sit around on people's shelves and you never really hear anything until the book comes out. And and But with one day, uh, there was a kind of word of mouth even before it was published that people were, were, were having a, a very positive response to the proof copies and they became quite sought after. And um, that was really exciting. At the same time, you know, my second book, uh, after Start of a Ten, The Understudy, hadn't done very well at all. And with one day, I didn't have any... That my, with my first book, I'd had this terrific leg up of, of it being a Richard and Judy pick. Uh, that wasn't the case with my second book, and it wasn't the case with one day. So there was, a, I think, uh, in my mind, a sense that this probably was going to be the last of my books and, and very much... Um, it, um, my writing fiction career anyway was on a downward trajectory but but yeah the buzz started to build and then when it came out in hardback even though my previous book hadn't done well um, the sales started to pick up and pick up and pick up and people really seemed to really respond to it I think it had a good premise you know it had what they call in Hollywood a high concept and the high concept got talked about a lot as well and so I started to get letters and I started to to get quite emotional letters and 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 there was a sense of excitement at the publishers as well and 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 it was thrilling you know it was exactly what I'd hoped for from the book I'd always wanted it to be a book that people um had a big emotional response to I've talked in the past about it being like a big old pop song that isn't quite happy, isn't quite sad, but it sort of tugs at your heart. And that was the intention. And, and it was one of those relatively rare occurrences where the, the intention seemed to be fulfilled. 
It's a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and how it interacts with people's writing lives. So be as candid or as guarded as, as, as you'd like to be, but with not just with one day, but before that, and then you know, when you had this huge hit, how has the, the financial side of all of this kind of developed and worked for you? Well, I've been, I've been very lucky, you know. I, I, I've been lucky in that I've managed, even before one day, I, I've managed to make a living as a writer. Um, it was looking quite precarious after a couple of shows hadn't, gone particularly well quite early in my career but but once I'd started um combining fiction and film and television I was I, I was doing okay and I suppose with one day it was a bit like um you know I, I know some theatre directors and what they always kind of long for is a show in the West End that will run but will allow them to go off and do other things and take some of the pressure off um the the, the 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 requirement to keep doing work that they don't necessarily love and for me that's one day you know it's it's been it it sells enough copies a year for me to for me to carry on and and um and I'm incredibly grateful for that um you know even after 10 years it still has these little flurries where someone picks it up and tweets about it and it has a little push in sales and that's great so I, I that's my pension and I'm very 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 lucky as a writer to have that because the other areas that I work in tv and film are quite precarious you know it's very rare for a writer to write successfully as a screenwriter for 40 or 50 years you know you go through highs and lows and I'm sure I will I'm sure that that that's all ahead of me but I, I'm lucky to have the security of at least one big success that will tide me over I hope. What was it like writing a novel after that? I read that a you had a very long publicity tour for the book to three years and also that sort of creatively it was quite difficult that you binned a manuscript of 30,000 words um, the next time you tried to write. Was it was it difficult to follow that that hit? Yeah it was horribly difficult. I mean Again, I don't want to feel sorry for myself because, you know, I, I was busy. I was being asked to do fantastic things and travel the world and go to all these places I'd never dreamed of. And it was very easy and pleasant to talk about one day. I could have done it for a lot longer, but there came a point where I had to kind of um, clear my head. And um, I got all the copies out of the office and, and actually moved somewhere else to work and a completely bare space and thought, right, get on with it, do something else. But I, I think you start, you, the, the worst thing that happens is you become very self-conscious because you start to ask what people want and not just what people want in the UK, but what people want in Brazil. You know, what do they want around the world? What do they want to read next? I, I think also, you know, philosophically, well, not philosophically, that's a bit high-minded, but you start to think about what kind of writer you are. Um, I don't mind write, reading writers whose books are all largely the same, you know, who, who, who come back again and again to the same themes, the same situations and characters. You know, John le Carre doesn't sit down or didn't sit down and think, I better not write anything else about disillusioned spies. It's fine that he's John le Carre. At the same time, I like a lot of artists who are always surprising me, who are always doing completely new things, writing in new styles and new forms about new subjects. What, you, what are you going to be? Are you going to show your versatility? Uh, or are you going to produce one day two, but do it really to the best of your abilities and not be embarrassed by it? It's a real dilemma. You know, Sally Rooney's new book has just come out and um, and a lot of the discussion has been about 
the kind of writer she is, the kind of world she she writes about, the kind of characters she writes about. Um, I think it's a terrific book. I'm really enjoying it, and I'm pleased that it's that she hasn't tried to write something that's outside her range. I think the analogy with acting is quite good. You know, often actors who are very good on one thing, at one thing, try to show their versatility and and fall on their faces. Um, and at the same time, you have to admire actors who take bold choices and take chances. And it's the same with writers. So you can tell I've thought about this a lot because I'm going on at far too much length. But I will say that it was very hard. And what I decided in the end was that I had to write something that I felt passionate about. And I was a little bit older by this stage and I'd become a parent. And it didn't seem appropriate for me to write another kind of 20-somethings falling in love novel Uh set around bars and nightclubs in London when what I was really doing was dealing with the business of, of parenthood. And at the same time, my own father was starting to become ill and I was thinking about not just being a father, but being a son. And so that became the focus of, of the follow-up, us. And once I'd kind of decided that's what I was going to write about, that I was going to write about marriage and family and parenthood rather than 20-somethings dating and falling in love, then actually came quite easily and it's a book that I'm very proud of. I, I think Us is a better book than One Day and I, I, I love it and even though I knew it was never going to sell as many copies I, I, I think it was the right book to write. Though there were moments I remember um, I remember when One Day came out. One Day was a big success in Italy and I, I used to go to these book events and there were lots of of young people in their twenties, at most 31, 32, and I would sign the books for them afterwards. And then four or five years later, doing the same thing with us, I realized that I was signing the books for their parents, not for them, <laughs> and that I'd kind of lost this younger audience and, and, and was definitely appealing to a slightly older crowd now. And I think that's fine. I think that's inevitable and, and, and far more dignified than continuing to try and write something that isn't really your experience or your world. Is it right that you were quite influenced by John Cheever when you were writing Us? Because that's, you know, I, I, I came across Cheever's stuff when I lived in the States and I found it fascinating, but it's quite, it's quite dark, like Milot. It is dark. Yeah, I mean, often these um, these associations are quite, are quite veiled and, and obscure, but I suppose the thing I took from Cheever was a sense of, um, you know, sub- Normal, conventional, conservative, suburban life that nevertheless conceals great passion. You know, that that's, that's the key thing with Chiva, that, you, that it's about you know, guys who get on the same train every day and go and have rather boring, unfulfilling jobs and, 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 and seemingly uh, conventional family lives, but who's, who nevertheless are just on the edge of falling to pieces. And that's a kind of recurring theme, not just in Chiva, but in a lot of American writing. And I... I I think, if anything, as a novelist, I, I am more influenced by American writing than than British writing. You know, Americans write so well about family and marriage and parenthood and uh, and um, and so about domestic situations. But with with you know, the great American novel is a is probably a domestic novel in our minds. And and so um, Cheever was definitely in there. Yes, uh, yeah. Um, the the stuff, the difficult stuff that bubbles away under seemingly conventional lives. And Cheever isn't very funny, and I hope that us is funny, but um, it was definitely one of a raft of influences. 
One of the uh, themes that comes up when we speak to novelists is whether they're a plotter, someone who works out the the arc and the outline of the story before they start writing, whether they plunge in and sort of see where the characters take them. Do you fall in one of those camps? Are you somewhere in between? And is there a similar process for screenwriting? Or, you know, how do you how do you write how do you actually write a novel or a script? That's changed a lot over the years. When I submitted um when I started writing Start of a Ten, I gave to my publisher a, a, a sort of fifteen page chapter by chapter breakdown, which is what I would do for an episode of Cold Feet. And I'd never really seen a document like this before. But for me, it was a way of um, uh, giving me confidence, really. You know, you know that even if you can't write the fourth chapter, you may be able to write the seventh chapter. Uh, that there'll be something further along that you're going to enjoy writing. And that if you put all of these things together, even though some some elements, story elements will be better than others, you it will tell a whole arc, a complete story. And so the first three novels were quite carefully plotted in a way that, that was pretty close to how I would approach an hour of original television, you know, with an A story, a B story, points of which they intertwine, a, a character Bibles. Um, I've moved away from that less. With with us, you know, us had this, um, us had a definite structure before I started, but I didn't plot it out quite so precisely. And with my last book, Sweet Sorrow, um, that was that was prepared for, but it was uh, preparation for that was much looser. It was much more about a mood. Um, it's this sounds a bit pretentious, but there was a kind of mood board for it, a sense of summer fading into autumn, certain pieces of music, um, certain uh, landscapes. Um, I wrote about seventy thousand words over the course of about eighteen months, but none of it you would really call a novel. You know, it was just a lot of sketches, a lot of improvised dialogue um so often preparation when people talk about preparing for a novel uh, inevitably you think of storylines and plots and uh and actually for me preparation is as much about mood uh characters and their backgrounds voice uh point of view the tense in which you're going to write it the tone in which you're going to write it the, the whether it's first person or third person all of that stuff i do need to know even if i don't need to know uh exactly the exact location where x meets y or what z says to b you know i can i can improvise within a framework but i need to know what i want to achieve with the book as a whole so i do prepare i never would never every time i tried to improvise something i've always ended up throwing it away uh but the preparation is often quite um abstract and and a, a, a mood rather than bare-bone story elements. Could you tell us a bit more about this role that, that music plays in your in your process? And I was seeing that, again, with Sweet Sorrow, it's saying that you had, you kind of described sort of listening to sort of earnest student music, the kind of music you listen to when you're that age and you suddenly want to share your great taste with people. And this I, really struck me because we, we recently spoke with Elif Shafak for the podcast and she was, she says she listens to like thrash metal while she writes, which um, seemed, seemed fascinating. But how does, how does music kind of fit, fit together with, the way you work. Yes, isn't that amazing? <laughs> well, it, it used to be that I could just listen to pop music all the time while I was writing, certainly when I wrote Start of a Ten, because what music does when you start writing is it it, 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 it makes you less aware of the silence in the room and you're, you're, 
your terrible existential loneliness. You you kind of, you think that you're, you know, there's something going on in the room and you're going to start writing and that's fine. And what you're hoping for is that the music is going to stop, the album's going to finish and you're not going to notice because you've been swept away in this imaginary world. Um, so when I began writing, I used to listen to a lot of music from the year in which I was writing, for instance, or, or music that I thought the characters would like. Um, and so, yes, every every novel up until a certain point, did have a soundtrack. With One Day, um, there's a kind of scene where uh, Dexter has a sort of breakdown at a terrible nightclub, and I wrote that to to the kind of music he would, you would listen to in the nightclub in 1997, I think it is. Um, I can't do that anymore. I mean, I, now I find it hard to drive a car if the radio's on, so I don't have the kind of... Uh, I don't have that... that um, clear vision so I, I I now listen to I do sometimes just need something to to get me started and I listen to a lot of Bach keyboard music um, I, I listen to you know, the well-tempered clavier most days just to get me going and then yeah the dream is that it stops and you don't notice but more often than not now I find it a distraction and I, I don't need it quite as much in the same way that I you know I didn't I don't need it in my life quite as much as I used to. I used to, in my twenties, hate being in a room that didn't have music playing. But now I'm 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 calmer about it. I certainly do use it to sum up a mood, uh, if I if I want to get into a particular frame of mind. But I can't listen to lyrics while I'm typing anymore. Yeah, I read that when you were doing one day the Billy Bragg song since Within Stage, which is obviously the day which all the scenes sort of unfurl from. Um, helped when you were stuck with words and tone. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, th- there were a couple of other touchstones for that book. I, because it was a book where the characters get together in the late 80s, early 90s, I was listening to a lot of things like Massive Attack and the song, the mood and the lyrics of um, uh, Protection by Massive Attack. That was kind of the theme song of that book. Um, but there are all kinds of other elements. I, I, I was talking earlier about how I wanted it to be like a big jubilant pop song. And I, I, I thought a lot about uh, I Say a Little Prayer by Aretha Franklin, which does this wonderful shifting between major and minor keys. And, and that was another theme song. And since Swithin's Day, you know, that line about the, por- the Polaroids that hold us together will surely fade away, that sense of nostalgia and lost love. Um, that was another touchstone for that song. It was a song that I was listening to a lot in 1988 when the novel began. It was a song that lyrically uh, fitted um, the themes of memory and nostalgia in the book. Uh, and it was a song that mood-wise summed up a lot of the melancholy that's in the book. So, yeah, music can be a key, um, but now I, I, I can't use I don't use it as such a... In such an intense way, and when I was writing us, you know, Douglas is is someone who actually doesn't really get music, and so there wasn't a soundtrack to us. Music is one of the arts that Douglas finds a bit intimidating and confusing, and he only really listens to Douglas only listens to sort of Mozart as a sort of uh, sedative. He doesn't love music in the way that Connie, his wife, does. So, um, but it's always there. I think it's a good way of showing who characters are. And it's also a good way of, of uh, as a writer, of just leading you into a, a mood or a, a location or a time and place. We're coming up towards the end of our time, but um, a final question for me was that you've spoken before about your experience of insomnia um, and also anxiety. And how have, how have those uh, experiences kind of fitted with your, your creativity and your writing throughout your career? 
Yeah, it, it, it's definitely made it harder, I think. I think it's very hard. You know, a lot of what I was writing when I, certainly when I set out, was comic writing. And at various times, you know, over the last 20 years, I've been a bit depressed and anxious. And it's very hard to sit down and think, right, let's knock out 300 brilliantly funny words when you're spending a lot of the rest of your day staring into space and trying not to panic and worrying about how you're going to get through the night you know it's 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 hard and i think probably some of the that anxiety and melancholy has found its way onto the page certainly themes of depression and anxiety are in us and sweet sorrow uh and a little bit in one day as well the insomnia, I kind of, I'm a little bit more, uh, I was going to say zen, but uh, I don't know what that means. But I'm a little less frantic about it now. I, I sleep a little better, if only because I'm, um, now I'm a parent, you know, I'm often physically quite drained and exhausted anyway. But um, yeah, I, I, it, it does sometimes make writing in a certain mode, not just difficult, but impossible. Uh but I'm lucky in that I have, you know, often have two or three things on the go at the same time. And so I can I can turn my attention somewhere else if I know that I'm I'm not going to write something brilliantly funny in my current state of mind. I mean, I, I, the, 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 I suppose if I feel sad about anything, it's that I really love comedy. And I, I don't think I write it in the same way as I used to. I used to love the comedy of embarrassment and humiliation and start of a tennis full of awful things happening to to Brian in, in a way that I probably couldn't do now because I find it too sad and awful. Um, uh, and so now I suppose the comedy is maybe a little bit less farcical and outrageous and, and, and a little bit more rueful uh, and um, bittersweet. That's a word I try not to use, but there it is. Um, that said, you know, I think Sweet Sorrow, the last book, is probably, it's both the funniest but also the saddest of the five I've written. So I'd love to write something that was just purely, unashamedly, joyously, outrageously funny. Um, and maybe I will, but um, who knows? Uh, final question for me was going to be, if, was asking about a passion project, what, what you'd like to do. I read that um, you'd like to adapt Tender as the Night and in fact have written a script of it, but it's not been produced. Is that right? Yes, yeah, I've written a, a, a Tender as the Night is a book I really loved in my in my twenties, and 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 again was in a weird kind of way an influence on us. I mean, Scott Fitzgerald is about as far away from my writing style as it's possible to get. You know, there's a kind of lyricism and a kind of doomed poetry to his his books, especially Tender as the Night. That is, it, there's not, none of that in my books really. But us was influenced by Tender as the Night in the sense of, um, you know, a couple falling apart as they travel around Europe and a very fluid movement between the past and the present. And it's a novel I've always loved. Now, I, I, I must admit, I love it a little less than I used to. I think it's a, you, the way you feel about books changes as, as you grow older. I know that if I were to read Tess now, for instance, I don't know if I would be as forgiving, not just of the characters but of Thomas Hardy as I was when I read it and so sometimes your your allegiances change slightly and your passion projects alter too as you as you go along so in a way if I'm passionate about anything it's it's the book I've yet to write you know I, I, I've always written um, with fiction in particular the last three and the last three books in particular they were very heartfelt and I'd love to find that kind of um sense of ah 
of of something that needs to be said again and so if i if i imagine myself as a happy passionate writer it's writing book number 6 i just don't know what it is yet well david look thank you for being a fantastic guest on always take notes and um wishing you all the best with your uh, all your projects going forward i hope i haven't babbled on but thank you <laughs> That was your Take Notes interview with David Nichols. He's not on Twitter currently, but his latest book, Sweet Sorrow, is published by Hodder and Stoughton. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello, it's us again. Simon, what was your takeaway from the interview with David? Uh, He was extremely affable. This was um, the thing that, that really stuck with me. He seemed a very kind of gracious and kind man when we spoke to him i thought it was also interesting how you know he'd had this parallel career as an actor before before moving into writing which i suppose has some overlays with with johnny geller who we had a a while ago who's an actor before going into agenting but obviously different and i I do think the people who come at writing novels from the medium of tv and drama maybe come at it in a in a different and perhaps more open-minded way what do you think yeah, I, I found uh, the discussion of the evolution of his career fascinating, particularly the sort of juggernaut hit that was one day. Um, and also, given my interest in the craft of screenwriting, um, how that's worked and the fact that he kind of didn't involve, didn't enjoy the involvement in one day, but now is very hands on in the adaptations of his of his work. So that was um, fascinating to hear about. What have you been up to uh, outside of Always Take Notes? Um, I've been closing a magazine piece for 1843, so doing the the kind of final um, bits and bobs for that. And I uh, I had my big thing in the London Review of Books last week, which was which was on the cover, so that was nice and had some very uh, very nice feedback. What about you, Rachel? I am going away shortly, so I'm taking a huge stack of proofs with me, um, including some authors that we should probably try and get on the show. Um, so I'm looking forward to digging into that. Um, and I've also signed up for some freelance script reading stuff. So I'm looking forward to getting stuck into that. I think that's kind of April, May, May time. So yeah, good to use the skills that I've learned on the course. Excellent. This has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikum. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser and our graphics are by James Edgar. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Instagram at Always Take Notes. You can support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.